The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We will be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So now let's open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the scriptures and let them speak. Why don't you take your Bibles uh, with me and open up to the book of Galatians, the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians has been called the Christian's Emancipation Proclamation, the Manifesto of Christian Freedom, the Charter of Religious Freedom, and the Letter of Liberation. It's a, a book that proclaims the freedom from the Mosaic Law, and the Reformers of the 16th century used the same arguments that the Apostle Paul made in Galatians to find freedom from the Roman Catholic Church. It was known as the battle cry of the Reformation. And Martin Luther was so deeply moved by the book of Galatians that he referred to the book of Galatians as my epistle. This belongs to me. I have betrothed it to myself. I live with it. I sleep with it. I eat dinner with it. It is my Katie Von Bora which is the the name of his wife. He says, this book is my wife. But as freeing and as liberating as this book is and has been for so many people, it's also a book that's cutting, that's penetrating, that's confrontational, that's unapologetic. And out of the 13 letters that we know that the Apostle Paul wrote, no other letter begins like this one. In every epistle, Paul offers some sort of prayer for those that he's writing to, Uh, But in this letter, he offers praise to God, and then he immediately jumps in to the body of this letter. Look at uh, Galatians chapter 1. Look at verse 6 of uh, Galatians chapter 1 and and verse 6. Look at what he says here. He says, I am amazed (laughs) that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Paul's just jumping right in. He uses this strong word for amazed, thalmazo in the Greek It means to be astonished, to marvel. It was a word that people used when they they couldn't come up with the right word to explain what they were saying. It's like, this is just beyond words. I'm, I'm just beyond, I'm speechless that you are so quickly departing from the gospel. We just sang about this amazing grace that we have. I'm astonished that you would depart from this amazing grace. And no letter begins like Galatians, but also no letter ends like Galatians. Look at chapter six of the book of Galatians. Look at Verse 17, look at how Paul, Paul ends this, this epistle. Verse 17, from now on, let no one cause trouble for me. For I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren, amen. I mean, Paul is so disturbed by what he's heard about the Galatian church that he basically ends his letter by saying, don't let me hear about this again. <laughs> like, don't bother me with this again. I, I don't want to hear about this again, that anybody's departing from this gospel of grace. I don't want to be bothered with this. And few letters are as straightforward and direct as the book of Galatians. Look at chapter 3. Look at verse 1. Look at how he addresses the Galatians. You foolish Galatians. I mean, how, how's that for, you know, the soft approach, right? You fools! <laughs> Who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? Look at verse 3 of chapter 3. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? I mean, why, why was Paul so disturbed? Why, what, what made this so urgent? 
What caused Paul to speak as directly as he did? It was the precious value of the gospel message. And the more precious and valuable that something is to you, the more earnest you will be in defending it. That's something your, your children don't understand when they're growing up, right? They, they, they don't understand that, you know, when you say no to this and no to that and no, you can't go here and I don't want you with this person. And they just think, oh, you're just so restrictive and, you know, why are all these rules? You know, why are you so crazy about these decisions that I'm making? I mean, why do you act like this? It's because you're so precious and valuable to me that I'm so earnest in defending you. I want to protect you. I want to defend you. The more precious and valuable something is, is the more earnest you'll be about defending it. And brothers and sisters, there is nothing more precious and valuable than the gospel message. In the preface to the book, Justification by Faith Alone, which is a a compilation of articles authored by John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul, and other authors, the, the publisher writes this, the most critical question facing anyone is how can I be made right with God? And the answer to that question is the central issue that keeps the various expressions of Christianity apart. While some within the community of faith will say we're merely dealing with semantics, just kind of word games, we say that we're dealing with differing eternities. And then he makes this insightful statement. The consequence of being for something is the necessity of being against that which stands opposed to it. If I am for something, I have to also be against what opposes that. So if it sounds like our church is standing against false expressions of Christianity like Roman Catholicism, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, liberalism, word of faith teaching, if it sounds like our church is standing against that, it's because we are. It's because we are. Because there is something that is so precious and valuable that we need to be earnest in defending it. So when you have someone expose false teaching like a Mike Gendron, I approve of that message and so should you. But more importantly, the Bible approves of that message and so should you. Defending the gospel against every distortion no matter where it comes from. And that's what's demonstrated in the book of Galatians. So let's take a look at the book of Galatians chapter 2. And I'm going to start at verse 11, Galatians chapter 2, starting at verse 11. Why don't you follow with me as I read? It says, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. Why don't you bow with me for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, and uh, Father, we're so grateful for your word, for the truthfulness of it, for the power of it, Lord, for the liberating power of your word. And uh, Father, I pray that you would open up these truths, Lord, Help us to apply these things to our hearts uh, because we trust in you. 
And uh, Father, I pray that you'd use me as a weak instrument to be a blessing to your people, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. If we're going to fully appreciate what's, what's going on here in these verses, especially in verses 15 down to 21, which is going to be our, our focus today, uh, we have to understand the background. Uh, the city of Antioch was a major hub of spiritual activity, and this is the, the context for what Paul is speaking about here when Cephas came to Antioch. Antioch was this major hub of spiritual activity. In Acts chapter 11, uh, we learned that the, the saints were scattered from Jerusalem because of persecution, and these scattered saints traveled as far as Antioch to escape the persecution in Jerusalem. And while in Antioch, they began to evangelize. As they, they went about, they were preaching the word. And as they came to Antioch, they were spreading the, the good news about Jesus Christ to the Jews. But then some of the disciples from Cyprus and Crete expanded the ministry from the Jews and also started spreading this message to the Gentiles. So now Gentile populations are coming to know the Lord in large numbers. In fact, there was this, this great explosion of men and women coming to the Lord from the, the Jerusalem church spreading the good news. And uh, this was such an explosion, and Barnabas was actually part of this. And Barnabas, uh, they, they sent to, to Barnabas, uh, to Antioch, to, to find out what's going on. What's going on here in Antioch? You know, let's, let's, let's have Barnabas go and check things out. And after Barnabas gets there, he witnesses the grace of God, or as it says in uh, Acts chapter 11 and 23, the hand of the Lord, to such a degree that he was filled with joy. He began to encourage the saints there, and as a result of his ministry, more numbers were brought to the Lord. So there's just this explosion of gospel activity. And Barnabas leaves Antioch for Tarsus because he wants his friend Paul to come and check this ministry out. Come back to, to Antioch to see what the hand of the Lord has done there. Maybe he wanted Paul to help out these new believers. Maybe he understood that Paul's ministry was particularly to the Gentiles. Or maybe he just wanted to share this joy with his dear friend Paul. Whatever the case, he wants Paul to, to see firsthand what the Lord is doing. So he finds Paul, he brings him back to Antioch. And this is where Paul and Barnabas minister for over a year. And the, 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 the people there, the believers, were first called Christians. This is where the, the, the term Christian shows up for the first time in Scripture, Acts chapter 11 and verse 26. It's in Antioch that they were first called Christians. I find it interesting that the word Christian only shows up three times in the entire Bible, but it's the primary de designation you know, for believers today. But this is where we find it starts, right here in Antioch. And while Barnabas and, and Paul were enjoying the grace of God, they're paid a, a special visit by the apostle Peter, or Cephas, as he's known in the book of Galatians. Cephas is the Aramaic uh, term for, uh, for rock or stone. Uh, Petros would be the, the Greek term for it, but it's the same person. And when Peter arrives in Antioch, he's just as excited as Paul and Barnabas are. He expresses his unity with the brothers there. And the way that he expressed his unity and joy was through a shared meal. Look at chapter 2 in verse 12. It says, for prior to the coming of certain men from James, he, being Peter, used to eat with the Gentiles. He was eating with them. And, and the verb for eat is an imperfect form of the, the verb. He was, he was continuing in this practice. It was a repeated practice. This is just what he used to do. It was his habit. You know, pa pass the bacon, brother. You know, he's just here eating with the, the Gentiles, having a good time, enjoying his unity together with these Gentiles. But then after that, there were certain men who the scripture says came from James, uh, James being the, uh, the prominent apostle in Jerusalem, the Jerusalem church. There were certain men who came from James, 
And these men who were part of this Jerusalem church came as a group, and they were known as those of the circumcision. These are Jewish men who came from Jerusalem, from the party of the circumcision, it says. Reference to Jewish people, a synonym for Jewish people, the circumcision. As we know, the rite of circumcision was a requirement according to the Mosaic law. Uh, it was uh, regarded as the sign of the covenant in Genesis 17.10 with Abraham. and Leviticus 12, verse 3, it also places the same sign on the children of Israel through the Mosaic law. If a person wasn't circumcised, he would be excluded from the covenant community, forbidden to practice religious customs, regarded as outside the blessings and the promises of God. Jewish people understood and assumed that the blessings of God were reserved for those who received the rite of circumcision. They had no place in their theology for Gentiles being received by God without circumcision. There were some who insisted that unless you're circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Apparently, these men who came from Jerusalem were of this persuasion. And as they see Peter eating with the Gentiles, they would have been shocked. Like, like Peter? <laughs> not, not Peter, the prominent apostle. Peter's eating with the Gentiles? So here they come. And Peter knows better that the Gentiles have been received just like we have. Peter knows better. But instead of demonstrating that he knows better, what does Peter do? He leaves the table. Verse 12. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. Peter, what in the world are you doing? Peter knows better. Peter received the, the vision in Acts chapter 10. You know, remember when the, the unclean animals came down on the sheet and the, the, the voice comes to him from heaven, Peter, rise, kill, eat. And what was the, the vision demonstrating to him? That which you've called unclean is now cleansed. <laughs> and, and who is it a reference to? It's a reference to the Gentiles. These Gentiles who you used to think of as unclean, they're now part of our family. Receive them. They've now been cleansed. Don't call unclean what I have cleansed. But now Peter pushes himself back from the table as if I, I I can't really have that kind of fellowship with you. As if this table is unclean to to be a part of. And eventually some of the Jews at Antioch began to follow suit. Look at verse 13. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Why does it say it's hypocrisy? Because Peter knows better. He's acting differently than what he believes to be true. And they follow him in his hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas, Barnabas is the one who was telling everybody, look what the hand of the Lord is doing. Come with me, rejoice with me. And even Barnabas was brought into this hypocrisy, carried away by their hypocrisy. And some of these men who came to know the Lord through Barnabas, their hearts would have sunk. Like, Barnabas, not you, too. You're, you're the one that, that told me that I've been received by grace into faith. You, too? He gets up and he turns his back on him. And you can just, just feel the disappointment. Then finally, Paul himself pushes back from the table. But uh, he's not trying to distance himself from the Gentiles. He's on a mission. And he marches in a straight line towards the new table that's formed, approaches Peter, 
and addresses Peter directly and loudly in front of everybody. Verse 14, when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? Peter, you're being a hypocrite. You live just like the Gentiles do. You were eating what they ate. You were part of their fellowship. There was no difference between you and them. Why are you going to act differently now? You know that you don't live like this, Peter. You know you don't believe this. If you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? What what would this have given the Gentiles the impression of? If I'm really going to be a part of this family of God, I've got to come through Moses in order to get to Christ. I've got to be circumcised. I've got to apply these dietary restrictions. Like there's more to being a part of the family of God than I thought. I used to think it was just faith in Jesus Christ. I thought if I repented of my sins and believed that I was in, but now I guess not. I guess I have to go through the circumcision. I guess I have to apply all the ceremonial laws. I mean, maybe that's the way that I have to get into this thing. He says, you're compelling the Gentiles to live like Jews. And it's not being straightforward about the gospel. You're not being, you're not being honest, Peter. Peter, you don't believe this. Peter was giving them the impression that he still lived like the Jewish people, and he knew, he knew that he didn't. And Paul couldn't let the inconsistency go unchallenged. And he confronts Peter head on with a direct blow. And Paul understood that the gospel of grace can never be, wick, be mixed with the, the works of the flesh. You can't, you can't mix the gospel of grace with works. Once you mix the gospel with works, you destroy the gospel. Once anything is necessary for you to do in order to obtain grace, you've destroyed grace. It's no longer grace. It's no longer a gift. There's something that I have to do, and now it's a work. He says, you're giving a false impression here. And then he goes into verses 15 to 21, and again, that's the background for this. But there's three questions. If anybody believes that we're justified by the law, there's these three questions that you have to answer. This is our outline. I know it's not up behind me, but this is it. Is faith in Christ useless? That's number one. Number two, is Jesus Christ sinless? That's number two. And number three, is the death of Christ needless? Those are the three questions that you have to answer. If you believe that works are mixed with the gospel, works are mixed with grace, these are the three questions that you have to answer. Number one, is faith in Christ useless? Look again at verses 15 and 16. We are Jews by nature, not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. No flesh will be justified. Is faith in Christ useless? Because even we as Jews have to believe in Christ. Think about this. Paul says that we're Jews by nature, okay? We're not sinners from among the Gentiles. Paul and Peter were Jewish by birth. Before they were even old enough to understand anything, they were circumcised. They were part of this this covenant. They were Jewish by nature and by custom. 
The word translated as as Jews here is an an adjective used to describe who they were. And this is placed in contrast to the the next adjective, which is the sinners. We're, we're, We're Jewish. We're Jews. We're not sinners. And this is how the Jewish people would have understood the distinction. You know, you're either Jewish or you're a sinner. <laughs> you're either on the inside or you're on the outside. And, and what do we have? Paul describes the Gentile condition in uh, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 12. He considers the Gentiles as those who are separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's the Gentiles. They're the ones who are outside. But, but we're the ones who are inside. To us belong the adoption of sons, the glory of the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, the promises. We have the fathers. We have the covenants. If any group was going to be considered as a, a group that was a candidate for being justified by their works, surely it would have been the people to whom the law was given, right? If anybody's going to be justified by the law, it would be the people to whom was given the law. And what Paul is saying is this. If, if we're Jewish by nature, we've been born Jewish, and we need to be justified by faith in Christ, why would you give the Gentiles the impression that they need something different? We, we grew up like this, and we still need to come to Christ. We recognize that our Jewishness was not enough to bring us to heaven. We needed something else. So, so are we saying that, that faith in Christ is useless then? Because, because it's really about the law, and it's not about faith in Christ? What are we saying here? The very fact that we're believing in Jesus Christ was an admission that the law was not enough to justify me. To trust in Christ was saying that the law does not do the job. This is the first time that the term justification appears in the book of Galatians. And it's critical that we understand what this word justification means. Uh, The Greek word is dikaio. It's uh, defined in one lexicon as being acquitted, being pronounced or treated as righteous, It was a word that was used in secular Greek to speak of a judge's declaration. I declare you innocent. It's a declaration. And it's in the passive form, which which means that it's not something that you do. I, I don't justify myself. I am justified. Somebody else does the justification. And the primary reference in Scripture is to individuals being declared righteous before God based on faith. This is how the word's used. According to Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, we have been justified by faith and we have peace with God. What does that mean? If I'm not justified, I don't have peace. If I'm not justified, you know what I am? I'm still underneath the wrath of God. Romans 5, 9. Being justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God in him. Those who are justified are also going to be glorified. Romans eight thirty. These whom he justified, he also glorified. And also in Titus chapter 3 and verse 7, it speaks of those who are justified having the hope of eternal life. So without justification, there's no peace with God, no salvation from his wrath, no glorification, and no hope of eternal life. There's nothing more critical for you to understand than am I justified? Have I been declared innocent in the sight of God? And there's at least two things that Paul points out. First of all, a man is not justified by the works of the law. You can't do it. There's nothing that you can do to declare yourself innocent in the sight of God. And the, the word not justified in the original appears first. It's like, it's like the signpost that hangs over works. No justification here. If, if you're looking for justification, don't come here. You can't come by the works. There's no justification to be found. 
phrase works of the law refers to the whole law. Everything that's contained in the law. Why don't you flip over to Galatians chapter 3 and verse 10 just to take a look at this. We're not justified by the law. What is he talking about? Look at verse 10, Galatians 3. He says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. If you're going to be justified by the law, you need to obey all of it. All things written in the book of the law to perform them. All who are under the law are underneath its curse. Underneath its cursed. All things written in the book. You know, sometimes I talk to people when I share the gospel, and they respond by saying, you know, so are you telling me that God is uh, going to send good people to hell? Just because they don't believe in Christ? Is that what you're telling me? That God is going to send good people to hell because they don't believe in Jesus Christ. And I told them, absolutely not. God's not going to send good people to hell. But the problem is, is that none of us are good. (laughs) Right? There's none good. Romans 3, 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Does God send good people to hell? No, because there are no good people. There are no good people. There's nobody that God can call good. James 2 and verse 10 says, Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of all. Peter and the rest of the Jewish Christians that Paul addressed knew this. I can't be justified by my obedience to the law. The law is too extensive. It's too pervasive. I've already broken the law. Like, how could I think that I could be justified by the law when when I know that I'm a sinner? So so what do I do as a Jewish person? I, I flee to Christ because I know I can't do this. I cannot obey the law to the extent that I'm commanded to obey the law. I need to be perfect. And there's none perfect. We're not justified by the law. Not only did they know that justification did not come through the law, they also knew that it came through faith. Back to Galatians chapter 2 and verse 16. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, that's the first part, but through faith. It's through faith. They knew that it came through faith. Not by the works of the law. Through faith in Christ Jesus. The preposition through speaks of an instrumental cause by which justification is communicated to the believer. Faith is like the the go-between, the instrument that I connect to justification. It's through faith that I connect to God. Galatians chapter 3 verse 11 says, Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, the righteous man shall live by faith. Galatians chapter 3, look at verse 24. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. Why? So that we may be justified by faith. And it was always God's intent to bring justification by faith because it was always his intent to bring justification by Christ. Because he's the righteous one. Where am I going to get righteousness? I don't have the righteousness. Where do I get it? I get it from Christ. And the only way that I get it from Christ is through faith. I believe in him. It's not by what I do, because what I do is what condemned me. 
It's who I believe in and what he's done. We're justified in Christ. Justification in Christ and justification by faith are equated. If I'm justified in Christ or by Christ, it's because I'm justified by faith. Romans 10, 3 and 4 says, For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they, the Jewish people, did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And this is what brings God glory, that we would trust in Christ alone for our justification. If there was any hope to be justified by the law, Paul says, what what are we doing believing in Christ for then? I'm believing in Christ because I know I can't be justified by the law. So faith in Christ isn't useless. It's not senseless to believe in Christ. I mean, that's the only way that we can be saved is by believing in Christ. So anything else makes faith in Christ useless. Second question, is Jesus Christ sinless? Is Jesus Christ sinless? Look at verse 17. But if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also be also been found sinners. Is Christ then a minister of sin? Are you saying that Jesus is doing something sinful? May it never be, for if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be the transgressor. What's Paul saying here? Throughout the book of Galatians, Paul argues for freedom from the law, okay? Look over at uh, Galatians 3, look at verse 22. Galatians 3, 22. It says, but before faith came, we were kept in custody under law, under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. We talked about that, right? So that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Follow this with me. Follow this thought with me. What, what, what's going on here, and this is the, the illustration that's given here, it uses this, this term for the, the one that we are kept in custody under. It says the, the law became our tutor, verse 24, to lead us to Christ. The, the word for tutor, uh, it's uh, translated in, in different ways by different translations. Some translations say schoolmaster, some say tutor, some say custodian, some say disciplinarian, some say the one put in charge. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to translate this, this Greek term, uh, paide gogas, it was a, a word that was used for somebody who was legally appointed to care for children between the ages of 6 and 16 for their parents. So, so they had all of these responsibilities. They tutored these children. They disciplined the children. They, they were like the schoolmaster. They were put in charge. So it's basically like a nanny. You know, we, we kind of serve over you, underneath your parents, but, but you're responsible to us while we're here. And they have to obey everything that this, you know, tutor says to do, this, this custodian, this one put in charge, this nanny. You have to obey the nanny. But when the parents come home, what do you do? You transfer that over to the parent. The nanny doesn't stay in the house and continue to tell you what to do. No, my, my dad's here. What are you talking about? Like that, that's been transferred over to another now. So the, the law was our tutor to do what? To lead us to Christ. So he is the master. He's the one that's in charge. And the law doesn't have that continuing jurisdiction over you anymore. It's, you've been freed from that jurisdiction. That's what's going on here. And this arrangement wasn't to continue on indefinitely. You were to transfer over to the one who is your true parent. And this is what happens when the believer comes to Christ. 
I'm no longer under the law. I'm now underneath Jesus Christ, and I'm now to live responsibly by his commands, under his laws. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the tutor. I've been set free from the bondage of the law. You get the picture? That's the picture. And Paul says that it's, it's Christ who set me free. It was for freedom, Galatians chapter 5, verse 1 says. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. Don't go back again under the slavery of the law. You've been set free. Christ has come. Now you're under Christ. And Paul says, if Jesus is the one who set me free from this law, are you telling me that Jesus is a sinner? Because he's the one who set me free. He's the one who said I don't have to continue with the circumcision, the dietary restrictions, and all this, the, 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 the religious days and celebrations. He's the one that told me I'm free from that. So now are you saying that Jesus Christ is a minister of sin? Is he an, an, an agent of sin? Actually, the, the word for, for minister of sin, uh, if you look back in, uh, in chapter 2, when it says, uh, uh, is, is Christ then a minister of sin in verse 17, uh, the word for minister is actually our, our word for deacon, you know? You know, have the, the deacon of care ministry, the deacon of, uh, you know, finances. And here it's Jesus Christ, the deacon of sin. <laughs> and basically, it's saying, you're, you're telling me that Jesus Christ is a minister of sin? Is he aiding and abetting sin? Because he's the one who set me free. While seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners. Is Christ then a minister of sin? If you're telling me that I'm a sinner because I'm not obeying the law, is Christ then a minister of sin? Is Christ responsible for sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I've once destroyed, I prove myself to be the transgressor. What's Paul talking about there? The context, again, is religious uh, Jewish regulations. If I put those boundaries back up that Christ has torn down, I'm making myself the transgressor. It's not Christ. I'm the one who's making myself the transgressors. And that's what the Judaizers were constantly trying to do. When they entered into a new territory, it's like, hey, no, you got to put those walls back up. You got to have the laws in place. You got to be circumcised. You got to, you know, eat kosher. You know, you have to obey these religious holidays. Galatians chapter 4, flip over to verse, uh, chapter 4, look at verse 11. Look at what Paul says here. He says, you observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you. <laughs> I'm afraid of you guys. That perhaps I've labored over you in vain. I've come and I've given you Christ, and I'm fearing that you, you don't even belong to him now. Are, are you going back to these weak and beggarly elements, thinking that you could be justified in that way? I fear for you. Do you even understand the gospel? Have I labored over you in vain? All the work that I've done among the Galatian church, is, is, was this all for nothing? Are you all lost? I mean, that's what he's saying. I'm, I'm amazed. How quickly are you deserting the gospel of grace? Are you kidding me? Now you think that you can start in the spirit and end by the flesh? Are you going to seek to justify yourself before God based on your own works? I'm fearful. Look at verse 19, chapter 4. He says, my children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. But I wish I could be present with you now and to change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. I mean, do, do you sense the heartache of the apostle here? He's like, I, I'm in labor. I, I mean, I thought I birthed you already. I thought you were already born again. I thought you were already following Christ. But now it's like I'm in labor all over again. 
Because I'm not sure if you really have life yet. It's like I'm in labor all over again. I'm perplexed about you. I wish I could change my tone, but I can't. Because I don't know where you are. I want to see Christ in you. I want to see Christ formed in you. I'm so distressed about this. You can sense the anguish. I don't understand what's happened to you. And that's the idea that's brought up here. Back in chapter 2. Look at verse 19. He says, For through the law I die to the law, so that I might live to God. What's, what's Paul talking about here? Through the law I die to the law? What does he mean by that? Listen to this. The only way to escape the demands of the law was to die. Three times he mentions this truth in these verses. He says, I died to the law. Verse 20, I've been crucified. Verse 20, again, I, it's no longer I who live. What, what does that mean? If, if, if I'm dead, you no longer have a hold on me. If I'm, I'm, if I'm dead, you know, I, I'm, I'm not going to worry about April 15th. <laughs> dead men don't pay taxes. You don't find the bill collectors in the graveyard. Dead men don't vote. Although I've heard some stories about that. But dead, <laughs> dead men don't vote. Dead men don't receive violations for breaking the law. Speeding tickets. You don't send that to the graveyard. When they're dead, they're done. And Paul says, the law, law no longer has a claim on me because I've died. <laughs> I'm dead. How, how did I die to the law? It was through the one who perfectly kept the law in my place. It's through Jesus that I died to the law. Look at chapter 4. Look at verse 4. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive the adoption of sons, because you are sons. God has sent forth the spirit of the son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, I have died to the law. I've been set free. Because Jesus Christ has fulfilled the law in my place. And now I'm free. I have a high priest who's been tempted in all points. Without sin. He's appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. Under the law Jesus was declared innocent. That's the law's declaration concerning Christ. Under the law Jesus was declared innocent. And he died to take the penalty for my sin. So the law released me in exchange for Christ, with the result that I'm now free to live towards God. This is what we're to understand about verse 20. In verse 20, when it says, I've been crucified with Christ, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. That's what he's talking about there. That I've, I've died to the law, and it's no longer me who lives. Now it's Christ, Christ who lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith, by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I live by faith, not by law. Why? Because I've been crucified. And my life is now Christ. So when the law comes to collect its bill from me, I send them back to the cross. Uh, you, you don't, you don't, I don't owe you anything. Jesus Christ has done everything. When Christ died, I died with him. So the law can chase me all the way up to the point of the cross and no further. No further. Because I've, I've received Jesus Christ. I've died to the law and now I'm free. The Paul who was crucified with Christ no longer lives. The Paul who was crucified was related to the law, but the Paul who lives now is related to God. The Paul who was crucified lived by the law, but the Paul who lives now lives by faith. The Paul who was crucified could not be justified, but the Paul who lives by faith is, de lives by faith is declared righteous in the sight of God. 
It's, it's a result of our union with him. I'm united to Jesus Christ. I'm no longer under the law. Now, now live with faith towards God, towards God. I live in Christ. He's my life. And he gave his life up for me. The one, the son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's, that's, the, that's a, a term of substitution. He gave his life up for me. In my place, in my stead. He stood for me. He took the penalty for me. He lived for me. Everything that I needed, it was him who did it. He did it all. All to him I owe, right? He did it all. He gives his life, not just for my benefit, but in my place. So anybody who would seek to be justified by the law, they have to answer is Christ. Faith in Christ useless and is Jesus Christ sinless because he's the one who set me free. And then the third question is this. Is the death of Christ needless? Look at verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Many who claim to value the cross of Christ totally strip it of its significance. Wear crosses around their necks and hang crucifixes in their home. You know, talk so much about the bleeding sacrifice of Christ all that he went through and all the different stations of the cross and everything else. They want to talk a lot about the cross, but they rob the cross of its significance and actually say that the, 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 the cross of Christ is useless. It's needless. The death of Christ stands as the only work necessary for our salvation before God. If anything outside the person of Christ was necessary, then his death never accomplished its purpose. You understand that? Because if you could have accomplished anything toward your salvation, then what was the sacrifice of Christ all about? Why did he come if you could have done it yourself? If somehow the saints could store up a treasury of merit because they've done more than what they needed to do, then what was the purpose of sending Christ? Christ came because you couldn't do it. There was nothing that you could offer. You were bankrupt. You understand that? Bankrupt. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for, for, for dress, right? Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. I have nothing to bring. I have nothing to offer. remember meeting this one girl who said, uh, you know, salvation is just... What salvation is, is, is you trying really, really, really hard, and you get to like 90%, and then Christ gives you the extra 10% to push you over the finish line. It makes the death of Christ unnecessary, because all you needed to do was give an extra 10%. And do you see how that diminishes the work of Christ? Like, well, you, you did the bulk of the work. You know, you did the 90%, you know. I'll just give you the extra, extra dime to get you across. I mean, are you kidding me? What Paul says is that those who are seeking to be justified outside of their faith in Christ, anything added to their faith in Christ, that it nullifies the grace of God. That word for nullify, atheteo, it's been translated as despise, reject, bring to nothing, frustrate, cast off, set it aside. You set aside the grace of God because I can do it over here. I've got something that I can add. You know, Christ does his part and I do mine. It's not a gospel of grace anymore. 
It was a word that was used in secular Greek for something that was canceled, rejected after inspection. I've inspected this, and then I reject it. It's, it's unworthy. There's something that needs to be added to it. And that's what happens when we add anything to the gospel of grace for salvation. We inspect the gospel of grace. We inspect the life of Christ and say, you know what? Something, something more needs to be added to this. You know, like you come into the kitchen, you taste the chef's dish and say, no, it needs something more. I need to add my own to this. What is that? That's, that's saying that you don't trust the chef. Like I'm actually, you know, I've got something here that I can, I can offer. I'm, I'm actually, you know, you know, hate to, hate to, hate to say it, but, you know, I've, I've kind of studied this a little bit too, you know. Like what, what are you doing? You don't add anything to the, the grace of God. Regardless of how minor it is, and and this is what's so important to understand, it does not matter how minor the work is. If you add anything to grace, it's no longer grace. If I add anything, if I contribute anything, it's no longer a gift. It's something that I had to work for. It's something that I earned. I contributed my own filthy rags to the righteous work of Christ as if he needed it. It doesn't matter how small it is. It doesn't matter if it's circumcision. It doesn't matter if it's a Sabbath day. It doesn't matter if it's a dietary law. It doesn't matter if it's baptism. It doesn't matter if it's communion. It doesn't matter if it's good works. It doesn't matter if it's penance. If there's anything that I'm trusting in, as if I'm adding this to the work of Christ, now it's no longer grace. And I have nullified and counted as unworthy the cross of Christ. That's what I've done. Anything that I add. I used to be a part of a church that taught that unless you're baptized, you can't be saved. Now, baptism, you should be baptized. I mean, we practice baptism all the time here, right? That's one of the questions we'll ask you if you come through membership. Have you been baptized? Because we believe that baptism is necessary for obedience, but it's not necessary for salvation. I don't get baptized in order to be saved because then that becomes the instrument of my justification. I'm not saved through my baptism. I'm saved through faith in Christ. That's the instrument. The instrument is through faith and through faith alone. Anything that I add to that alone, it's no longer alone. (laughs) Now, there's something else that I'm hanging on to, thinking that this is what I need to do. I'm holding on to this because this is what connects me. doesn't matter what it is. R.C. Sproul explains the good news of the Roman Catholic faith in his book, Justified by Faith Alone. This is what he says. The gospel according to Rome is the good news that a sinner may be justified if he or she receives the sacraments, has faith, cooperates with grace to the point of becoming inherently righteous, and that justification is effective as long as the believer refrains from a mortal sin. If the person loses justification by mortal sin, he or she may be restored to justification by the sacrament of penance. If the person dies not in a mortal sin but with impurities, he or she can get to heaven after being cleansed in purgatory. Do you see how many stops along the way there are in there? It's not faith and faith alone. It's faith plus. Faith plus. That is every false religion. It's faith plus. Faith plus something else. 
I like what Calvin said. He says, there is a great emphasis in this expression for how dreadful is the ingratitude manifested in despising the grace of God, so invaluable in itself and obtained at such a great price. Yet this heinous offense is charged against the false apostles who are not satisfied with having Christ alone, but introduce some other aids towards obtaining salvation. For if we do not renounce, renounce all other hopes and embrace Christ alone, we reject the grace of God. If you don't abandon everything, you're rejecting the grace of God. You abandon everything, and you come stripped naked to the cross. I have nothing to offer. I have nothing. And those who seek to establish their own righteousness don't understand how high the bar is for righteousness. Romans 10.3 says, For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. The righteousness that I need to, to, to be accepted before God is a perfect righteousness. A perfect righteousness. Let me just share a couple passages with you. Philippians chapter 2. Why don't you flip over to Philippians 2 real quick. Hopefully you're storing this away somewhere. (laughs) The righteousness that we need to stand before God is perfect righteousness. Philippians 2, look at verse 8. Actually, I'm sorry, Philippians 3, verse 8. Philippians 3, that's what I was looking for. He says, more than that, I count all things to be in loss of the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Do you understand what he's saying there? I've got to consider everything else is rubbish. It's all trash, garbage, refuse. Everything else in my life. I consider it rubbish. All the good works that I had, my birth, my circumcision, it's all trash. It's all garbage. I, I, can't, I can't hold on to any of these things. I count them but rubbish. Why? So that I may gain Christ. I have to consider that refuse so that I can trust Christ. I consider one rubbish so that I may gain Christ. And I can't hold on to the trash and bring my trash bags with me. You got to let go of the trash and trust in Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. What kind of righteousness do you need to stand before God? You need the righteousness from God. It's his righteousness, perfect righteousness, divine righteousness. That's what I need in my place. 2 Corinthians 5.21, we know it well. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I need the righteousness of God. Perfect righteousness. That's the righteousness that I need to stand before the throne of of heaven. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. I need a perfect righteousness. And for Luther, when he understood that that his righteousness came from God, he said it was like the gates of paradise swung open. (laughs) Lived all of his life as a Roman Catholic, as a monk, thinking that somehow I I, I just got to do better. I've got to do more. I've got to show that I'm really sorrowful for my sins. He beat himself. He slept on cold slabs. He fasted for days. Wasted away, 
all trying to gain the righteousness that he needed to present himself before God, and he knew that everything that he did, it wasn't enough. God, it's, why aren't you ever satisfied? It's never enough. It's never enough. And then finally, as he's reading the scriptures, he understands that it's not my righteousness that he's looking for. It's his righteousness. And I get that righteousness because I believe. I trust it by faith. And that righteousness is imputed to me. It's given to me as a gift. And he said, oh, it's like the gates of paradise just swung open. This is what I've been looking for all my life. This is it. And he says that it's not simply one doctrine among many, justification by faith alone. It's not just one doctrine among many, but it's the chief article of faith by which the church either stands or falls. Either you stand on justification by faith alone or you fall. One's a church and one is not. The church stands or falls on justification by faith alone. Romans 4, 5, But to the one who does not work but believes, him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. He's the end of righteousness. So the death of Christ was necessary because because I had to believe in him, his life, his death, his resurrection. I had to believe in him. It was all of him because there's nothing that I, I had that I could have added to it. It was all of Christ. One more passage. Flip over to Matthew 26. And just think about the significance of this, okay? Matthew 26. Matthew 26, we have Christ. He's in agony. He's praying fervently. His his sweat is dripping off of his body like drops of blood falling down to the ground. The, The capillaries are bursting and sweat is being mixed with blood as he's in agony in his prayer before the Father. Look at verse 36, Matthew 26. It says, then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and he began to be grieved and distressed. That place, Gethsemane, was an olive press. It was a place where olives were crushed. And here Jesus himself was being crushed. And even his blood was coming out as he's in agony and prayer, grieved and distressed. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face, just just collapsed in a heap and prayed, saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. If it is possible. Father, if there's any other way, if there's another way to accomplish this without bearing your wrath, if there is any other way that this could be accomplished without the, the agony upon the cross, and it's not just the physical death, Father, it's the, the, the eternity of wrath that would be poured upon me for every sinner who would ever believe, Father, if there is any other way possible. Let this cup pass from me, Father. There was no other way. There was no other way. 
The death of Jesus Christ was necessary in order for you to have justification before God because it was going to be all of him. If your works could have been added to Christ, Jesus would have never gone to the cross. If your works could have been, you know, just kind of stored away over time and eventually added up to, you know, I finally got enough merits now, Lord, I've done it. If, if that had any equation at all in your salvation, the Christ, Christ would have never gone to the cross. It would have been unnecessary for him to go to the cross. And the consequence of being for something is the necessity of being opposed to that which opposes it. We're for the gospel. We're for the gospel of grace. And that's why we have to oppose anything that would come against this gospel. You understand that? There's nothing that's more precious and valuable than this gospel message. The most critical question facing anyone is how can I be made right with God? And while some within the community of faith will say we're merely dealing with semantics, we say we're dealing with differing eternities. And I approve of this message. Do you? Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, so much for your word. Your word is so rich. It's so powerful. It's so clear, God. We thank you for a clear word, the clarity of the scriptures. And Father, I pray that you would Help us, Lord, to stand upon this, that we would defend this, that we would proclaim this. Father, I pray that you would use us as instruments in your hand, Lord, to to bring men and women to yourself. Father, we pray for another Antioch experience, Lord, even here. (laughs) That there would be Gentiles, Jewish people coming to faith in Christ. And Father, that we would be bold to stand upon the word of truth. And that we would defend this gospel against all opposing messages. My Father, may you be glorified in our lives. In this church, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 You have been listening to George Lawson Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events and where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserves all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating all printed media, CDs, and digital files.